Let me ask you, excuse me, please to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. In just a moment, I'm going to read for us verses 41 to the end of the chapter. While you're turning, I do want to um, add a word of welcome to the Gainers. Brother Keith mentioned them this morning. Jared is, in fact, a student at the Midwest Center now, and he is also speaking every Wednesday night at Pellville Baptist Church. I believe uh, that he and Lindsay are members of that church, so pray for his ministry. Also pray for Pastor Joe. He was pleading for others this morning, but he has not been well, and I'm sure he's still not completely well, and just ask that the Lord would heal him and strengthen him this week. I want to... um, also welcome Tiffany, would be Chad's fiance. She's visiting again. The time is drawing near for them. It's my privilege to give them premarital counseling. And um, I think she'll be coming back one more time, God willing, before they marry. And Chad will be going out to California one more time before they marry. And then on June the 12th, God willing, they will vow to one another. Uh, Last week, we welcomed Tina Thomas uh, as Jonathan's friend, and during the week, I introduced her to a number of people more boldly as Jonathan's girlfriend, and this morning, I welcome her as Jonathan's fiance. We're uh, thankful for Tina, her life, and the gift she is to Jonathan. Now, this morning, I'm just going to indicate from the very outset that the burden of my heart as one of your pastors is to clarify for all of us what vision we as your pastors have for Heritage Baptist Church, especially in terms of what it should strive continually to be as a church. That's the burden of my heart, to clarify our vision, which we believe is God's vision, for what this church needs to continually strive to be. And there are two assumptions that I bring to this sermon. The first is, God's Word alone has the right to define what we must be. And my second assumption is very obvious, and that is that we as a church have not yet arrived at complete conformity to what God wants us to be. And of course, realistically, we will never arrive at perfection in that regard, but we must always strive toward it. Those are the two assumptions that I I bring to this study this morning. And what I want to do is take just a moment to speak to you about what a church is, secondly, what a church does, and thirdly, what a church enjoys. But I think I'm just going to add this word healthy. I want to remind you of what a healthy church is, what a healthy church does, and what a healthy church 
enjoys. I remember one time when Pastor Richard brought a a sermon that included something concerning the essence of something and the function of something. He said, let me put it real simply. I want to talk about uh, what it be and what it do. You remember that, brother? (laughs) And I want to talk about what it be. What the church be. What the church do. What the church have. So, that's putting it very, very simply. What is a biblical church? Well, very simply, it is a group of baptized believers who have been called out of the world into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and one another, which gathers under the loving oversight and humble service of true pastors and true deacons. That's a very simple definition of what what a church is, biblically speaking. Group of baptized believers who've been called out of the world into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and into fellowship with one another, which gathers under the loving care and the humble service of true pastors and true deacons. Now, my definition didn't include what the church does. That's what the church is. And the key words in my definition are the words believers, baptized, gathered, pastors, and deacons. A true church is made up of believers, converted sinners who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are to be baptized believers if they become a part of the church. A group of believers does not a church make. These believers, according to our Savior, are to be baptized. After we make disciples, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But these believers must come together. They're not a church if they're scattered all over the four corners of the earth. They may belong to what we call the invisible church, but I'm speaking of a local church. And a local church requires that these believers come together under the loving care and oversight and shepherding of true pastors. And while deacons perhaps are not essential to the being of the church, they are assumed and they are vital to the well-being of a church. And so that's what a church is, a group of believers who have been called out of the world into fellowship with Christ and one another, which gathers and which is watched over and cared for by true pastors. That's all I want to say about what it be. Now, I want to go secondly to what a healthy church does, what it do. And this is where I want to lay the emphasis this morning. And when I come to the third point of what a healthy church enjoys, I will be very brief about that as well. Because my burden is for this church to more and more be and do what God calls us to be and do. And so the emphasis will be on the doing. What does a healthy church do? How is it characterized in its life, in its behavior, 
in its actions, in its functions. And I think we find tremendous help from Acts chapter 2, where we have the inspired and fallible record of the church which had been so recently born in Jerusalem. Now, I know that this church, like all churches, eventually began to manifest weaknesses and sin, as every church has weaknesses and sin. But being so freshly born of God, it was characterized by those things which should characterize a biblical and healthy church. Now, this passage is not, you know, it's not imperative. It's not the Bible telling us what we must be. I grant to you that it is narrative. It's explaining what this church was like. So blessed of the Holy Spirit. But we must observe it. And as we read what this church did, in our hearts there should be the yearning and the longing to do what they did. And I don't see anything with the exception of one verse that ought not to characterize the life and the doing and the action and the behavior and the function of Heritage Baptist Church. Let's notice it. You notice in verse 41 that after Peter had preached that God-blessed sermon on the day of Pentecost, so blessed that the hearers interrupted the sermon and pleaded for advice as to what they should do. He told them they needed to repent and be baptized, and they did. And verse 41 says that there were added that day about 3,000 souls added to the believers that uh, already existed, at least 120 who had met in the upper room. A biblical church is a church that can be added to and subtracted from. That is not my emphasis. Notice verse 42. And they, this would be the believers who constituted the, the church that had just been born there in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, in the original language, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, not prayer, prayers. Verse 43 is the exceptional verse. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There are no capital A apostles doing those things today. But now we come back to what is normative. And what I read to you in verse 42 is normative. There's nothing in verse 42 that should not characterize Heritage Baptist Church. And there is nothing in verses 44 through verses 47 through 47 that should not characterize Heritage Baptist Church. Notice, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God 
and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in a moment, as I comment on each of these, I hope I can clarify the sense in which perhaps there's a little difference between what they experience and what we ought to experience. But when we look at these descriptions, there is a principle, there is a virtue, there is a quality that transcends the particular situations of the church in Jerusalem and could very well be applied to any biblical church. I'll explain what I mean. Now, you noticed, and I'm kind of skipping ahead for here just for a moment, to verse 46 and pointing out that they continually gathered at a place of worship. During those transitional days, the temple was still the place. They didn't immediately abandon Judaism. They went to the synagogue to worship and to the times of prayer. But when you come to verse 42, it says that they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the same verse says they continually devoted themselves to fellowship, sharing, that wonderful word koinonia. And they continually devoted themselves to observing the Lord's Supper. That's really what he's talking about when he says the breaking of bread. It's not merely going from house to house. That's spoken of in a few moments. When the definite article, the, is used, it's clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper. They continually devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper. And they continually devoted themselves to the prayers. There were stated times and places for the people of God to pray. And then we're told in verse 45 that they met one another's needs. This is not what some have called Christian communism, where everybody's supposed to sell everything they have and no one's supposed to own anything. That's not at all what this passage is talking about. It's simply saying that there was a tremendous need during those days. There was a great deal of poverty in Jerusalem. And the saints looked at their own possessions and their abundance and they said, this is from God, it's not really mine anyway. I'm happy to part with it in order to help those who are in need. And so, as the case may have required, some people sold things. They weren't coerced to do it. They did it by the coercion of the Holy Spirit, not by the apostles. And they met one another's needs. There were no needs that were unmet, we're told later in chapter 4. And we're told in verse 44, that they were together. Togetherness characterized this God-blessed church. We're told in verse 46 that they ate together in one another's homes, that they received their food with gladness, and that they were very generous in one another's lives. And then we're told in verse 47 that they were a church characterized by praising God. Praising God. This isn't probably a reference to any particular worship service. This is a reference to their lifestyle. This is the way they lived their Christian lives. They did meet together. They did worship together corporately. But they also cared for one another. And they met with one another in their homes. And they ate together. And they helped each other. And they lived lives that were characterized by praising God. And I submit to you again, dear people, none of those things, none of those things are inappropriate for any true church of God. In fact, all of those things should characterize 
Heritage Baptist Church. We should be a people who gathers together at worship. We should be a people who continues in apostolic teaching, a people who fellowships, a people who observes the Lord's Supper, a people who prays corporately, a people who cares for one another's needs, a people who comes together, a people who eats together, a people who praises God. Those are the things they did. That's what the church do. The church is a group, a community of believers, of disciples of Jesus Christ who have been baptized and who come together under the loving care of true pastors and the humble service of true deacons. But what do they do? They gather. They learn. They fellowship. They observe the ordinances. They pray. They meet each other's needs. They get together. They eat together. And they live lives that are characterized by praise to God. Now, I just want to elaborate. I want to give you kind of a different way of looking at what a healthy church does. And let me submit this to you, and I hope you'll find this helpful. I believe that God's Word requires the church to do three things. I believe that the local church exists in the purposes of God to do three things. And these are just sort of categorical. And I think you might want to jot these three things down. Number one, the church exists to worship God. Number two, to mature the saints. And number three, to evangelize the lost. And I'm just going to add this and plant churches by the people who have been evangelized. Worship God, mature the saints, evangelize the lost. Those are the three dimensions of God's purpose for the church. One is upward, the other is horizontal, and the other one is inward. There is a vertical dimension to the purpose of the church. There is an inward dimension to the purpose of the church. There is an outward dimension to the church. And I'm going to submit this, though it's one of the points of my application. And maybe I won't emphasize it then. But this seems like a good place to make this point. If the church is only one of those three things, or only two of those three things, and not all three of those three things, it is not a healthy church. If a church exists only to worship, and doesn't exist to mature itself, and to care for one another, and to grow in grace, It isn't a healthy church. And if a church only worships and only feeds itself and causes itself to be mature and doesn't go out into the world to make more disciples and to evangelize the lost, it is not a healthy church. And I can do that in any order. I can start by saying a church that's only into evangelism, that's only into missions, and we certainly aren't, so don't don't hear sort of a subtle thing about us needing to be more careful about missions because I'm not at all hinting that we need to give ourselves more and more and more to missions. But I'm saying that if a church thinks that it only exists for missions, then that church does not think biblically. Because the church has been called by God to be a worshiping people who gathers together. That's the very essence. I've already defined what a church is. It's a group of converted sinners who have been called by God's grace 
powerfully through the ministry of the Holy Spirit out of the world of sin and unbelief into fellowship with Jesus Christ and into fellowship with one another to be cared for and to be fed and to be matured through the ministry of Christ-given shepherds. So my point is, these three dimensions to the purpose of the church are given to us by God. So what does the church do besides the specific things I mentioned that took place in the church in Jerusalem? The church exists vertically to worship God, inwardly to build itself up to mature the saints, and outwardly to evangelize the lost and then plant churches by those who have been evangelized. So could I just say a word about each of those things? Now, how is it that the church worships God? Well, through the means and by the ways he himself has directed. All of which find their source in the word of God. How does the church worship God? By the way he has directed and guided. And of course, that worship has to be word-based. And so one thing we like to think of is that we... um, We preach the word, which I'm trying to do now. We teach the word, which we did in the hour preceding. We read the word, which we heard only a few minutes ago. We sing the word, as we did in our times of music worship. We pray the word. Pastor Joe brought holy arguments based upon the word of God back to God. And once a month, we symbolize the word, particularly the gospel word about the death of our Savior in the ordinances. And so, we worship God according to His Word. And thereby, in all of these components of worship, we bring to God in every worship service, if we're truly worshiping, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And that's what Hebrews 13 speaks about. So that's how we Worship God. The church exists for worship. And may I say this to you, that means that when the church gathers on the Lord's Day, though the gospel must permeate all of its aspects of worship, the primary purpose of the Lord's gathering is not evangelism. It shouldn't be neglected. The gospel needs to be brought out. We should, as Spurgeon suggests, have many sightings of Calvary in our sermons, and we should never allow an unconverted person to go out of a gathering like this without some sense of what the gospel is. I pay tribute to all of those realities, but what I am saying is that the purpose of the Lord's Day gathering is not primarily evangelism, and that's what's happened to so many churches. And they mean well. And I don't mean to be harsh in my judgment of them. In many regards, they may have more of a heart for evangelism than we have. But at the end of the day, they tend to produce a rather shallow, anemic, weak kind of Christianity. Because all the people of God here are gospel sermons. And then they have to find other outlets for feeding. God's people are the called out ones who come together 
to worship the God who called them out and to be fed and to grow in grace. And we need to remember that. Now, a word about this maturation process. Because I said the second purpose is inward, not just upward, but inward. Yes, we have to care about the life of this body. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why on Wednesday nights we take prayer requests about this body. And we don't pray just about missions, because guess what? We're made up of people who have serious problems. We have people in this church who have surgery. We have people in this church who have bouts with cancer and terrible back problems. And we, we pray for one another. We care for one another. We listen to one another. And I know that that requires a balance. But the, the body comes together because it has needs. And the, probably the greatest need, however, is that we mature in our faith, that we mature in all of our graces. And so, we seek as pastors to build up the saints. I'm trying to build you up this morning. I'm trying to build you up with regard to your understanding of what the church is and what the church does and what the church enjoys. And I'm really especially trying to build you up, edify you, strengthen you, mature your thinking with regard to what the church does. And so we seek to build the saints. We seek to teach them more and more about God and more and more about life. And that's a challenge. And you can pray for your pastors because we need a lot of wisdom because this church is so blessed with godly, knowledgeable teachers and preachers that um, we have a proneness to to continually serve up um, I guess you could say filet mignon. And it's a challenge for newer people who come among us. And we hear again and again. And it's usually just a confession of true humility. Wow, we feel so dumb here at Heritage. Some of you remember when you, you said that. I feel so dumb. And we as pastors are sensing the need for us perhaps to always have some courses available during our Sunday school hour for the younger Christian, even for the non-Christian. What is the Christian faith all about? What are the basics of Christian doctrine? So pray for us that we will have wisdom to meet the broad needs of this assembly because we're not all mature saints, but we all need to mature more and more. And so that's one of the main purposes of the church, to mature the saints and to build them up, helping them to grow in grace helping the saints to make progress in their sanctification. And that just means in their becoming more like Christ, dealing with sin, living more holy lives. We want to help build the church up in establishing Christian marriages and Christian homes. And so we have perhaps a whole series on marriage or a whole series on parenting. That's what we're supposed to do. And I would just ask you to take a brief look with me at Ephesians 4. We're not taking many excursions, so uh, please just notice in Ephesians 4, when Paul refers to the gifts that Christ gives to the church, at the end of his list, he tells us 
that the, aris- the ascended Christ in verse 11, Ephesians 4:11, has given to the church pastors and teachers. And they go together. Every, every one of these categories begins with a definite article. And this definite article is the pastors and, and teachers. Because those two works are so inseparable in the life of a true pastor. In fact, a true pastor has to be apt to teach. Why did he give pastors and teachers to the church? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints. My duty, my fellow pastor's duty in preaching to you is to equip you. To equip you for what? To equip you also for ministry or for service. Notice that. To equip the saints for the work of service. Because we want the building up of the body of Christ. Now there are some who don't think that the Apostle Paul is really talking about equipping the people for ministry. I believe he is talking about that. And and most of the commentators that I've studied also believe that. One of the reasons I believe that so strongly takes me to the second, the second dynamic in a maturing church. The first is pastors who teach to equip you. Why do we equip you? We equip you so that you can minister in one another's lives. So that you can exhort each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Just to use one of the biblical responsibilities of the average layperson. So that you can pray for one another. So you can bear one another's burdens. But notice toward the end of this little section, especially with um, verse 15... Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, Christ is the head of the body, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. I don't have time to to seriously exegete this passage, but I'm just going to suggest to you that if you are a true believer and a member of this church, you're a joint in the body which helps hold the body together. But notice toward the end of that 16th verse. By every joint with which is equipped, when each part, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The head is Christ. The joints are the people. They are also called by Paul each part. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it, the body, the body builds itself up in love. So I'm just reminding you, dear people, that the purpose of the church isn't just to worship upward. The purpose of the church is inward. We need to mature. We need to grow. And the pastors are giving their lives to teaching and preaching and and seeking to equip you. But part of our equipping you is to be able to minister in each other's lives. So that each part, when it works properly... Builds up the body. And and we go over this in the church membership class. And I want to just probe your conscience by asking you this question. What contribution are you making these days of your life to building up this body? 
Can you say, these are the things tangibly I'm trying to do to contribute to the sanctification and the corporate maturity of Heritage Baptist Church. These are the things that I've tried to do in the last year. And it may be helping in the nursery. Tremendous ministry. It doesn't always have to be teaching. It's using your gifts for the overall good of the body. So, the second purpose for the church's existence in addition to its upward purpose of worship, is its inward purpose of maturation. And then the third thing I want to suggest to you is that the church exists, as I've already said, to evangelize the lost. That's the outward. Upward, inward, outward. To evangelize the lost and then to plant churches with the people who have been converted. Now in this in the Acts 2 passage in that narrative it's more implicit than it is explicit as far as the evangelism. But did you notice in Acts 2 that that church was a growing church and that people were getting saved? Did you notice that? In chapter 2 and verse 47 it says and the Lord added to their number because salvation is a sovereign work of our savior. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It doesn't mean he said, I'll be your secretary and I'll keep track of it and write them down for you. It means I will be the Savior, the same Savior who saved you to other people. And as my saving grace is extended, this church in Jerusalem will grow. And it did. People were being saved. Now, I guess you could conclude that all the work of evangelism was done through the apostles and none of the people were sharing their faith. But I think that would be pretty hard to conclude on the basis of what we read about this church. Because this church was living such lives corporately that they became attractive to their community. That's why verse 47, after it says praising God, it says having favor with all the people. People said, wow, look at those Christians. Look what's going on in their lives. They seem to love each other. They care for each other. They meet together. They eat together. They pray together. They study together. They're such happy people. They they have generous hearts. They have gladness of hearts. They're praising God. What is it that they have? Surely that became an attraction. And surely many of these believers talked to their unconverted friends about the Savior that they had come to love. I know it doesn't say that explicitly, but I think it says that implicitly. Now, I just want to say this, and then I'm going to try to go to application. I wish I could take time to show you this really well, but I can't. Because what I would love to do is give you a little theology of how um, churches plant churches. But let's just start with this church in Jerusalem. Okay, It was born on the day of Pentecost, wasn't it? 3,000 people were saved and baptized. Well, what happened? Well, what happened was, um, chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. And what happened was chapter 8. And I would have you notice chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, And there arose on that day, that is the day of Stephen's stoning, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all 
scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, who is the all? It isn't the apostles, that's for sure. You could say, I suppose it was just the gifted teachers. But the antecedent to all is the church. On that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Certainly not every single person without exception. But there was a, there was a great dispersion of the believers in Jerusalem because of persecution. And then notice, please, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered about, are scattered, went about preaching the word. Now, it is true that a case in point was Philip, who happened to be one of the deacons. But we've already been told that they were all scattered, not just the deacons, and certainly not the apostles. I believe that many normal Christians had to leave Jerusalem. But they went with a message. And according to verse 4, they preached that message. Then if you'll skip over to chapter 11, I'm really, really going very fast here. You will notice verse 19. Acts 11, and by the way, in the meantime, Saul of Tarsus gets saved and Cornelius gets saved. In fact, a church is born in Samaria, but I don't have time to show you that. But in chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. And then we have a reference to preaching the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 20. Notice verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. What happens? People were getting saved. Look at verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So what does Barnabas do? Barnabas goes to find Saul of Tarsus, verse 25. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church. Ah, there's a church. A church. Where did that church come from? Through the preaching of the word because of persecution. Where did the people who were persecuted come from? The church in Jerusalem. So in effect, the church in Jerusalem becomes instrumental in the forming of a church in Antioch. And then, I'm, I'm almost through with this little theology. Go to chapter 13 and notice verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, and so forth and so on. And then the Holy Spirit says to the church in Antioch, I want you to separate for me Barnabas and Saul, that's verse 2, for the work which I have called them. And so Barnabas and Saul go on a, Paul the Apostle, go on a mission trip. And in chapter 14, this is the last place I'm turning to you, turning you to, in verse 1 it says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. That's in Iconium. Later in a different city, Paul is stoned. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't. And now notice verse 21 of chapter 14 through verse 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city, 
that was Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and so forth. And then verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Remember my definition? It's not just a group of believers. It's a group of baptized believers. It's not just a group of baptized believers. It's a group of baptized believers who come together. It's not just a group of people who come together. It's a group of people who come together under the loving care of elders. This is a church. The church in Antioch, in Iconium, was born. And then the church in Iconium Iconium was born because of the church in Antioch. So you got Jerusalem, Antioch, Iconium. Churches planting churches. And that's something that we are trying to get a hold of and embrace. And envision so that what's happening in Newburgh isn't the only church that Heritage Baptist Church ever plants. You see, the church exists to worship God. The church exists to mature itself. And the church exists to duplicate itself. To evangelize the lost. And through those evangelized to plant churches which will plant churches. Which will plant churches. Churches that do what? Worship God, mature the saints, evangelize the lost. All right, that's my theology. I conclude with these applications. By the way, what a healthy church enjoys, and I can't develop that because of time. It enjoys oneness of heart and soul. It enjoys favor. It enjoys esteem. And it enjoys a kind of healthy attraction and distraction. In Acts 5, we're told that people were afraid to join the church and that other people were attracted to it. That A healthy church, it should be a church that people are actually somewhat apprehensive about joining. you believe that or not? You should be sort of apprehensive about joining certain churches. Because if, you, if joining a church is just it's like changing banks, it's no big deal. Just take your money out, put it in another bank, establish a new account. Switch churches... Here's a church that's very inviting, very warm, uh, no, no particular standards, nothing to fear. Let's join it. No, a biblical church is a church where the people in the community say, wow, that's serious. Those people are serious about God. They're serious about the Christian life. They're not legalistic, but they want to be pure and holy in their lives, and they're willing to hold each other accountable, and they have pastors who love them enough to tell them the truth. You can't just live in adultery of that church. You can't fornicate and, and not be disciplined. That church is serious. Man, I don't, think, I don't think we want to be a part of that. We actually want people to say that. Now, you've said, Pastor, surely you don't want people to say, Yes, we do. We want people to say, if that's what it means to join that church... Since I'm determined to continue in sin, I don't want to join that church. But other people are going to say, wow, that's what I need. I need that kind of love. I need that kind of mutual caring. I need that kind of pastoral concern. I need that kind of accountability. Honey, let's visit that church. And in a strange way, a biblical church 
sort of dissuades people from joining who shouldn't join and attracts people who should. That's what a biblical church enjoys. So, what a church is, what a church does, what a church enjoys, that's all I can say about that. Here are my applications. Number one, if the church is a gathering of true believers who have been baptized, then it stands to reason that you cannot be a part of what the church does without becoming a baptized believer. You can't be a part of God's purpose for the church. And this is also true for any person who may be kind of an official baptized member of Heritage Baptist Church, but who has not been truly converted. Is it possible that we have such people on our membership role? Yes, it is. Jesus had one false disciple in a gathering of only 12. And if any of you are not truly converted, but you're deceived about the state of your soul, or you haven't been willing yet to tell the pastors that you know you're unconverted, I need to tell you this in all honesty. You may gather with us. You may outwardly observe the Lord's Supper with us. You may pitch in in helping one another with your uh, funds and with your meals. And you may even eat in one another's homes. But you cannot be a true disciple. You can't be a true learner. You can't enjoy true fellowship. You cannot really pray with the people of God. You cannot live a life of true praise. And you can't be of one heart and one soul. It's utterly impossible because you don't have the Holy Spirit. And this sharing, this communion, is brought about by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And you simply will not be able to do anything that God has designed for the church. You're not going to be truly upward in your worship. You're not going to experience any real inward maturation. And you certainly aren't going to have a heart for evangelism and missions because you are not yet truly born again. You'll be just like an empty shell of, say, a walnut. There's nothing inside of it. You'd be like a radio without electronics on the inside. And I plead with some of you to examine yourself with regard to whether or not there's reality in your profession of faith. Are you really and truly engaged with your heart and life in God's three-dimensional purpose for the church? Are you truly engaged Worship, maturation, evangelism. And the second thing I want to say is we need to be self-consciously determined and wholeheartedly enter into each of God's purposes for the church, individually and corporately. So I'm going to apply it to you individually. Do you Are you self-conscious about the purpose of the church? Well, you say, maybe I'll be better now because you've helped me understand that there's this vertical, this inward, and this horizontal. Well, I hope so. Because all of us need to be self-consciously determined to enter wholeheartedly into God's purposes for the church. So that means when it comes to worship, we say, wow, we're gathering Sunday morning. God's purpose for us to gather is to worship Him. I've got to bring my whole heart and soul and mind and spirit. I want to enter wholeheartedly into worship, into the singing, into the hearing of the Word read, into hearing the Word preached, into the prayers, into the Lord's Supper. I really need to engage my whole soul because that, that's God's purpose for the church. 
He wants the church to worship. And that means he wants me to worship. And I want to say again that if any one of these purposes are neglected, we can't be a healthy church and you can't be a healthy church member. If you're only into worship and you're not into being fed or into evangelism, you're not healthy. If you're only into being fed and you're not into worship, you can't be healthy. If you're only into evangelism and you're not into worshiping and being fed, you can't be healthy. And neither can the church. And all of us need to enter wholeheartedly in God's purposes. And the final thing I want to say It brings me to our Savior. I just want to remind you of the obvious. The church was purchased by Christ. That's what Paul said in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, which he purchased by his blood. The church is Christ's bride. And so to be a part of it is to trust in him and to love him and to know him and to worship him. He is central to the church. The biblical church isn't only word-based, it is Christ-centered, and it is gospel-saturated. And so all the aspects of what a church should be and what a church should do point us to our Savior. He bled for the church. He makes it possible for you to become a member of the church because He died to pay for sins. And He lived a perfect life so that you could be provided with righteousness. How we must love our Savior for the church. The church, we are His bride. He is our groom. And I plead with those of you who are not members, not necessarily members of this church, but of a true Bible church, flee to the Savior and become a part of it because in so doing, you become His bride. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We've covered so much. Help us to remember the things that are critical. We thank you for the church. We thank you that we are, those of us who know you, a a group of former rebels, wicked, vile, hell-deserving sinners who have been called out of the world by your grace into fellowship with Jesus and one another so that we might worship you, so that we might be matured, so that we might take this same gospel which saved us to the lost. You have made us worshipers. And now we pray that we will be compelled by compassion to make as many other worshipers